Welcome to Resilience Radio, crushing the tough stuff. The podcast where we explore how to leverage your thinking in order to overcome life challenges. And now, here's your host, Kim Addis. Hello, hello. This is Kim Addis talking to you from Resilience Radio, where my guests are experts at crushing the tough stuff. Today, my guest is Chris Widener. Chris, hello. Welcome to the call. Thanks for having me, Kim. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, I'm really happy to have you on. For those of you who have never heard of Chris Widener, he is uh, an internationally renowned top speaker of the world. Um, He's spoken all over the world in places like Germany, Spain, Russia, China, Egypt, Singapore, and of course, Canada and the United States. We're always proud of people who come to Canada. Um, But Chris, you've had some experience working with some pretty interesting people out there, one of which is Jim Rohn. Can you just fill us in on that? What was that like? Sure. Yeah, actually, I was ghostwriting for a guy named John Maxwell okay. uh, back in uh, the early 2000s. And um, somehow word got out and Jim and his team called me and asked me if uh, if we would be if I'd be willing to come and ghostwrite. And I said, well, I'm really not interested in doing a whole um, a bunch of uh ghostwriting anymore so I would be happy to do some co-writing and work with you and uh, and they said great that's great so I ended up uh, co-writing uh, the Jim Rohn one-year program and uh, and then also his last book which became a big bestseller we've sold over a million copies of it and uh, it was called 12 pillars so I was able to um, I was able to work with him the last seven years of his life so I kind of became his last protege and it was amazing to be able to speak on stage with him and be able to write books with him and and then of course you know have private dinners with him and and really get to know such a legend in our industry so what was the most um kind of lasting memory he left for you personally or professionally it could have been you know a conversation an experience something he did but something that kind of just left a mark for you oh man where do you begin with that you know um I think uh, probably one of the most lasting things was, you know, he always used to talk about the sower and the seed, uh, the the story from the Bible and Mm -hmm. how our job is to be sowers. And it's not our job to determine what happens with the seed. So, you know, different kinds of people are going to respond differently to um, differently to people. Uh, to the message that we send out. Right. And so, um, you know, some people are going to take it and they're going to get sidetracked. Some people are not going to take it. They're just going to think they got their own way. And and so they're never going to grow. Other people are going to take it and produce, you know, 30, 60 and a hundred fold. But our job is to do the job of sowing. And, uh, and it's, it then depends on what kind of soil the seed lands on. And I've always just loved that because, you know, people can kick themselves if, uh, if everybody doesn't listen and change and grow and, and change and growth is the part of the listener. Uh, the job of the speaker or the author or the coach is to give the information that, that becomes that seed into the person's heart and mind. And then it's up to them to decide what to do it. So it takes a lot of pressure off, Mm -hmm. uh, know, having, you know, holding yourself accountable to everybody you coach or speak to, you actually changing because a lot of people just don't change. Right. So are you saying that um, if we do interact, I'm a coach, so I'm interested in what you just said. If I have a client who, you know, is really, really resistant, then I shouldn't get discouraged that I should still give them as much as I can, but also not necessarily be attached to their specific outcomes or achievements. 
Yeah, for sure. And then what I do is I fire them as coaching clients. If I don't think they're making movement, I just tell them, look, this is a waste of your time and money. It's a waste of my time. So, you know, I, I remember the first time I ever did it, I didn't really want to do it because, you know, they were paying me. But, um, you know, I gave the guy things to do, action points, and he'd call me back the next week and say, oh, I just didn't get to it. And I just finally said, you know, look, if if you're paying me, you know, a monthly fee to, to give you advice and coaching, you know, it's not just to make you feel good so you can say you have a coach and tell your friends. Uh, it's for you to actually make some changes. And so I canned him. <laughs> and how, what did he, how did he react to that? Yeah, I suppose. Because he knows, right? You know, people know if they're not making the effort. They know if they're not making the change. And so uh, I haven't had to fire too many, but I've fired a few coaching clients where I just said, you know what, this just this just doesn't work. So do you think that people progress at different rates? So, you know, I've coached many, many people over the course of my life, and I find that some people really absorb the material very, very quickly, and they implement it at the speed of light. And other people, man, it just takes longer. Oh, absolutely. And this wasn't his second call. You know, this was like his 10th call. Yeah. So it's not like, hey, here's your homework. And they call back for their second call and they don't do it. Hey, you didn't do it. You're out of here. Right. Uh, but this was a long, ongoing process where I just realized that I think he was more interested in in having a coach. So it kind of made him feel better. And it just wasn't worth his time or money or my time. OK, so let's help people get to know you a little bit more personally and um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, uh, I'm 50 years old. Uh, I just moved to Scottsdale, Arizona. I figured I'd live 50 years in the rain in Seattle. I wasn't going to die in the rain. So I moved to Scottsdale Mm -hmm. uh, and I love it down here. Um, I'm divorced. I have four children, ages 21 to 26, two of whom are married and two grandchildren. Um, And if I had to describe what I do is uh, I'm an infopreneur. I, uh, I used to say I'm a speaker and an author, but there's so many different ways to get information out that, uh, that I'm very active in social media and audio programs, video classes and programs, webinars, of course, my speaking engagements. I just did one a couple of weeks ago to 6,000 people up at Niagara Falls, oh. uh, 15 books. Uh, I do four or five ebooks every year, just launched a podcast. So it's more of an infopreneur, um, getting the information out through a wide variety of uh, vehicles. Okay. So if somebody wants to find you, how do they find you? Uh, they can Google Chris Widener. That'd be the quickest way. Or they can find me on uh, uh, Twitter at Chris Widener. Perfect. I think that for those of you who are listening, uh, looking up Chris would be well worth your while. He is a wealth of information. There are tons and tons of videos that you can find on Chris or from Chris. And each one is inspiring and really interesting and kind of gets you glued to your chair, just wanting more and more and more. So please go and find Chris and listen to him. We're going to take a slight turn in the conversation. Now, I know that things didn't always necessarily come perfectly easy to you. Um, When you were young, you had a bit of a rough ride. So I think it started at the age of four when your dad passed away. So can you take us back there for a minute? Sure. And, you know, I just want to say before we start that I'm really glad that you, you know, when, uh, when Doug contacted me and and set up this in uh, this invite to do this, uh, to do this call, um, I remember one time a minister told me, he said, I never tell 
my congregation, anything negative that happens in my life or any of my problems, because I'm supposed to be inspirational and, you know, all that. And I am of the direct opposite opinion. I think that it's important for leaders to share their struggles. I think it's important for people to share their failures because everybody struggles and everybody fails. And so for people to see someone who has succeeded in life, come back and say, hey, it hasn't always been good. There's been lots of problems. It, 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 that is actually what is inspirational. Um, and so I'm happy to tell my story. Um, I was four years old. My dad, 1969 was the last year my dad made an income. He made $90,000 in 1969, which is equivalent of about a million dollars now. And we were living in a big, beautiful country club overlooking Lake Washington in Seattle. And everything was going well. And he got cancer and died within about six months. And, uh, and so, um, my, he didn't have hardly any life insurance. He had $30,000 worth of life insurance. And so, uh, we went from living in a country club. My mom had to sell the house cause she couldn't afford the outrageous mortgage payment of $400 a month. And we ended up living in a little two bedroom condo on the other side of the tracks. Uh, that began a downward spiral for me cause I didn't handle diverse, uh, didn't handle, um, um, adversity very well. And uh, I became a problem child, began acting out in school, began getting in trouble, so much so that my mom shipped me off to live with relatives twice, uh, once in the ninth grade to live with my Aunt Rochelle and my Uncle Paul, once in the ninth grade to live with my, uh, once in the third grade with my Aunt Rochelle and Uncle Paul, once in the ninth grade with my, my sister Gail and her new husband, who was a Seattle police officer. Um, but I began to get involved in uh, drugs at about uh, fifth grade, alcohol in about fifth grade, uh, drugs in sixth grade. Uh, began using drugs quite heavily, uh, made most of my money as a kid gambling uh, uh, at the horse races out at Long Acres Horse Track, which no longer exists out there. But uh, I was going in the wrong direction pretty fast, hanging around with the wrong crowd and uh, and really just wandering and, and lashing out. And I spent most Wednesdays for a number of years growing up at the Behavioral Sciences Clinic at the Children's Orthopedic Hospital, seeing a counselor and and really just, I guess, you know, if, if I had to describe it, I was just completely and totally lost and uh, didn't know, didn't know where to go or how to get there. Okay, so I want to just spend a couple of minutes there. You're in the fifth grade and you're taking drugs. Where are you getting these drugs from? Oh, other friends and, and older brothers of friends. Uh, in the sixth grade, I lived across the street from uh, a kid whose uh, older brother was the, the drug distributor in the local high school. And you had to pay for these drugs, presumably. Yeah. And you got money for pay for paying for the drugs through gambling. Pretty much, yeah. So you went to the horse races and you bet on horses. How, I mean, how did you know which horse was going to win? I became an expert on horse racing, believe it or not. <laughs> Uh, I used to read the daily racing forum every day and it's all online now, but you used to get a little paper and you could, there was a bar, a uh, restaurant bar down the street that I would walk to and I'd pay the dollar or whatever it was for the daily, the daily racing forum. And, uh, and my big drug buddy friend, his, uh, his dad was a, a big, uh, horse race aficionado and we'd ride out to the track with him and, uh, and we would, he'd place our bets for us, or we'd get other adults to place our bets for us. And, uh, interestingly enough, uh, we could actually even place our own bet. Interesting. So you're in your kind of early teens, getting into all kinds of trouble, sort of kind of only laying low because you're succeeding. And how, how is your mother handling you? I mean, w what are those conversations like? 
Uh, not very well at all. She, um, I always tell people my mom was the best thing that happened to me and the worst thing that happened to me in my life. She, she was on one hand, she would tell me that I was the greatest kid ever and I could achieve anything I wanted in life. And, uh, the other part of the time she was beating me, you know, to within an inch in my life with anything long and flexible, whether it was a hot wheels racing track or electrical cord or a pancake turner or a belt or, you know, anything she could get her hands on. Uh, I have since done some research into borderline personality disorder, and I'm convinced that my mom had BPD. Um, and, you know, I was in, in later on in my life, I was really able to forgive her because I realized, you know, her upbringing and then she didn't know any better. And then, you know, she had BPD. And so she was just doing to me what she had done to her. And she would never had the opportunity or never took advantage of the opportunity to change and learn and grow. And so I spent uh, half my life uh, being praised and half my life being beaten. So how did you make sense of that at that age? Did you like what what did you believe? Uh, I don't didn't really believe anything. Um, I just took my beatings most of most of the time. I wouldn't say they were deserved because a beating is never deserved. But I certainly gave her every every reason to uh, discipline me. And right. uh, she just didn't know how to discipline properly. I mean, my my sophomore year of high school, I was called into the principal's office on the last day of the of the year. And my principal, Mr. Davidson, had a stack of papers in his hand. And he said, do you know what these are? And I said, no, what are they? And he, they said, these are the written referrals to, to the principal's office that you had this year. Oh, uh, so when we got in trouble, the teacher would, would write up a written referral and triplicate one to the office, one for their records, and one goes home. And uh, he said, do you know how many there are here? And I said, no. And he said, 47 written referrals to my office this year. I'd oh. like to see next year be better. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I was definitely, um, I, I think probably the only thing that saved me was sports. I played uh, football, baseball, and basketball and was a starter on the teams. And I think that's really probably the only reason people put up with me was because, uh, you know, I was able to play sports well and I was smart. And so I, you know, I would, I would uh, never turn in any homework in my math classes. I would just skip all the homework and I'd get an A on the test for a C in the class. Oh, so you were one of those. I made it my way through, through <laughs> class that way. So did you have relationships? Did you have friends? Did you have a girlfriend at that time? Uh, I had um, I had a number of close friends. It's one of the things I've always had. I've always had close male friends. Um, so I've always been a big believer in that. I've always had a lot of male friends. Um, I had lots of girlfriends in high school. Uh, one time after we got married, my, my wife said, hey, I want you to go through your, your high school annual and show me the girls you dated. And after I showed her about the 26th girls, she said, let's just stop this. I don't need to see any more. <laughs> so so I, I, I definitely uh, dated. Well, you're a pretty attractive guy. I'm sure that, oh. you know, when you were younger, you were, you know, the apple of a lot of girls' eyes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, so, so how do you go from 47 reports on the last day of high school to where you are now? What happened to turn things around? What changed? What was the journey of your transformation? That's something you talk about a lot, and I want to really hone in on that. What made a difference for you? Yeah, it was interesting. I was spending the night uh, in the 11th grade at my biggest pot-smoking buddy's house, and it was a Saturday night. And on Sunday morning, about 8.30 in the morning, his mom threw the door open and said, get up, we're going to Sunday school. I had no idea what Sunday school was. I, I was like, isn't school Monday through Friday? I had never gone to church. I'd never had anybody talk to me about God, nothing. And, 
And but I thought, hey, I've tried everything else. I'll try Sunday school. So we went to this uh, we went to this little church, Mount Sai Lutheran Church on the corner of 8th and Ogle in a little town out in the Cascade Mountains called uh, North Bend. And there was a youth minister there and uh, he took me under his wing and really, you know, kicked me in the butt. And, and I think two things really happened. Number one, uh, I had a male role model who loved me and, and had had the perfect um, balance between loving me and kicking me in the butt. And uh, secondly, I had never really thought about the concept of God or that there was a bigger purpose or that I was created for a purpose and a plan. Uh, and it began a spiritual journey for me. Um, and, and that was what made the entire difference. I had a little Bible study for high school kids on Wednesday nights. And uh, at the beginning, I used to go stoned out of my mind and, uh, and or drunk. And uh, he just continued to love me. And, and, uh, and over the course of a year or so, that really significantly changed my life gave me a broader perspective to life. So was it the fact that he just didn't give up on you, even though you showed up in altered states? Yeah, because uh, a lot of people gave up on me. You know, a lot of teachers, they gave up on me. Um, and I had a few over the years that didn't give up. For those people who are listening out there, who are experiencing their own challenge, their own struggle, what kind of advice would you give them? Um, you know, even in the wake of struggles as you were older things happen you know you mentioned you were divorced i'm i was divorced got remarried not an easy time but what would you recommend for people who are going through a hard time uh surround yourself with friends who love you uh find business mentors uh life mentors coach if you need a coach um create a support system for yourself um Mm -hmm where people will love you and accept you. You know, I, when I went through my divorce, I, uh, I was surprised by, uh, the reactions of some pleasantly surprised by the reactions of others, but I had the whole gamut. I had, uh, uh, a very good friend of mine who's a staunch Catholic who read me the riot act and told me he thought I was probably going to hell, uh, all the way to people who, who just told me, um, Hey, this must be really hard. I'm here for you. I love you. I'm praying for you. If you can, if I can ever do anything for you, let me know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, you know, so I focused on staying in relationship with the people who, and I had, and I had a very good friend of mine. He's a wildly successful businessman in Seattle. Uh, he is the president of a, one of Seattle's most popular brands and, and nationally known. And he didn't like the fact that I was going through a divorce. Uh, you know, he, he thought that, uh, you know, divorce wasn't the right thing to do. And, and yet he loved me. And he accepted me. And I and I really respected that. He gave me his opinion. He told me what he thought, but he was going to be there for me no matter what. Mm-hmm. And so it's just interesting. You, you have to be very careful about the people you surround yourself with when you're going through struggles. And you want to surround yourself not with yes men uh, or yes women, but uh, with people who will tell you the truth and uh, and love you. And that's mm-hmm. a very, very important thing to surround yourself with. One of the patterns of your life is that somehow you've been connected to some people in pretty high positions, somehow, right? So, I mean, is there a secret to that? And I'm, I'm asking because I want to know. Um, I used to do leadership seminars, and the president of Jim Rohn wanted me to create a new product. And I, we were talking about what product we should do. And, and he said, you know, I don't know anybody that is connected to as many big people as you are. And he said, maybe you ought to talk about how you did that. So that's how the book, The Art of Influence, came about was, you know, he said, how have you become so influential? And um, 
And so I did took about six months and thought about it and researched it and thought through my own life and analyzed it. And, and, uh, and it ended up with the four principles that I, that I talk about in the, the book of the art of the influence, but I'll give you one that I, that I, I talk about pretty regularly from the speaking world because, mm-hmm. um, I worked with John Maxwell. I worked with, uh, Jim Rohn, as you mentioned earlier in the broadcast, and then, uh, ended up working with Zig Ziglar. I co-hosted Zig Ziglar's television show with him in Dallas for about a year and a half. And the thing I realized about in the speaking industry, for example, and it's probably transferable concept to any industry. Most of the time when a beginning speaker meets a very successful speaker, they'll say something along the lines of, Hey, I want to be just like you. Can you help me? And I realized that one of the things I did with John Maxwell and Jim Rohn and Zig Ziglar, I didn't say, I want to be like you. Can you help me? I said, I want to be like you. How can I help you? And there was always a place for me to help them. With John, it was ghostwriting. With Jim, it was writing and, and you know, covering some speaking engagements he couldn't do. Uh, with Zig Ziglar, first, my first interaction with Zig Ziglar was uh, a friend of mine and I started a company where we sold personal and professional audio programs through Costco and Sam's Club. And we were selling about 50,000 units a month. And, uh, and Zig was in all those boxes that we sold and we paid him a hefty royalty on, on every box. And so when it came time for him to do a television show and they were looking for a younger person because he was at the tail end of his life, uh, and he didn't want to carry the show. He wanted to have a kind of a co-host. Um, I already had a television show on that network. And so they asked me if I would be willing to do it. Well, part of it was because I'd already been serving him by getting mm-hmm. his message out to the world and paying him a royalty to do it. And then I was willing to to be the guy who just threw questions at him and, and carry the show and pace the show. I wasn't the star of the show. Uh, I was the guy who made him look good. Uh, I mean, you know, he makes himself look good, but I, my role was to make him be in a position to look as good as Zig could possibly be. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was serving people. And I realized that when you serve other people, and you do it well, and you do it long enough, eventually they want to help you. And so, you know, I I found that uh, in many ways, a lot of the ways that I've been able to create influence at high levels was by helping other people uh, get business deals done, uh, make referrals. I I don't get paid on the referrals. You know, Uh, I had one guy, he owned a a big, uh, a big uh, company in, in town in Seattle. And I thought of another guy that they should do business together. And, and I said, you know, you guys probably really ought to do business together. I gave each other their names and they started doing about $500,000 a year in business together. I didn't get paid on any of it, but both those guys really liked me even Mm -hmm. more. after. Mm -hmm. So say that again, you say to them, I want to be just like you. How can I help you? Yeah. Or or some version of that, you know, um, you know, uh, some version of that. How can I, how can I help you? Because people who are wildly successful like that, they're a lot of times too busy to help you. They've right. got their own careers and, and, but they could use some help. Mm. And then, you know, you start helping. So I started helping Jim Rohn and Jim had a, uh, Jim had a, an exclusive deal with Herbalife. Uh, they paid him a lot of money, seven figures a year, but it was an exclusive deal, which meant he couldn't speak to any other company in the network marketing industry. And so what happened was now I was working out of their office and working with him and they became comfortable with me. And now every time someone called from a network marketing company asking if Jim could speak to them, they said, well, no, he has an exclusive deal with Herbalife, but his protege who works closely with him, Chris Widener is available. And I ended up booking, you know, 50 or 60 speeches a year that way. 
Interesting. So I know that you're pressed for time. You're a busy man. So I'm going to respect that. But I have one last question. So you have a coach on the phone. If you could ask this coach any question, what would that question be? You know, uh, I would probably say this is good for me and it's good for everybody. Um, In moments of time, whether it's a week or six months or two years, as people go through massively stressful situations, how do you keep your mind focused and stress-free? Well, I think that um, when you're going through massively stressful situations, you need to have like a little bit of a a valve to release the stress every once in a while on a regular basis, you could say, right? So it's kind of like that balloon that increases, increases, increases pressure. At one point, it's got to give, except if there's like a little seeping air gap as it's getting continuously filled, there's some way for you to let out the pressure. And so everybody has a different method. Uh, One of the things that I do with my clients is I strongly recommend that they journal on a daily basis. That's what we do. Uh, They journal and as they journal, their journal goes back to their coach who reads and responds to their journal. But journaling is a huge release mechanism. It's that little gap in the balloon that lets out the pressure. Other people do things like they exercise or they meditate or they sleep in a little bit or they take a break from that pressured environment. They go for a walk. They go see a movie. They change their mind. In other words, they allow themselves a little bit of time to pay attention to something else. Um, Sometimes when we're under vast amounts of pressure, uh, there's a problem we can't seem to solve. Right. And we turn it around in our brains over and over again. There's a concept called the breakout principle, which has you doing a repetitive physical motion over and over again. It could be walking. It could be dishes. It could be knitting. It could be anything that's repetitive and mindless. And when you're engaged in that repetitive and mindless activity, suddenly solutions come up in in your mind. And that's another way of just releasing a little pressure is by actually solving some of the problems. But ultimately, You know, you can speak to people who can help you. Of course, I believe in coaching, but managing your mood, managing your uh, your emotional state is really critical and allowing yourself some time to release the pressure every day is, I think, uh, probably my highest recommendation. Mm, Yeah, that's that's really good. Good stuff. So I want to say thank you so much for being on this podcast today. I really appreciated your insights. Um, I, 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 lo- I love the story you shared, and uh, I'm really interested in, you know, your, your career, and I think that any, everybody else is. And so please go and look up Chris, Chris Widener. How you spell that is W-I-D-E-N-E-R. Did I get that right? That's it. Wide with a ner on the end. Widener. So thank you so much, Chris. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for listening to Crushing the Tough Stuff on Resilience Radio. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. To learn more about Kim Addison Frame of Mind Coaching, visit www.frameofmindcoaching.com.